spooky beats for the spooky pod for our ghost blog. Welcome to Dog Dad's Ghost Blog. I'm your ghost dad, <laughs> Dog Ryan. It's not how that works at all. Well, I don't know. Ghost Dad is good though. Ghost Dad? Mm-hmm. Mm. Did you ever watch Ghost Rider as a kid? Fuck yes. Cool. That show I don't really was... have anything else to add, but cool. I'm glad. That show was sick. That was an after-school classic. I do feel like that may have been one of my earlier influences that made me go like... That made you have a ghostwriter for your whole rap career? <laughs> Definitely not. And start a ghost blog? Definitely not. And be a ghost dad? Have you ever ghost produced for anyone? Maybe. Are you not at liberty to say? Nah, I mean, you could say if you don't. Um. Yes, but nothing that ever like went anywhere. I've been asked to, and I've done it, and then things got shelved. Mm. It would be so trash if you ghost produce something that popped, though, too. Yeah, a lot of times now, though, like, there's, I mean, there's money. The money is the same a lot of the time as if you actually produce something. This is probably not interesting for 99% of the people listening or probably don't even know what I'm talking about. Hi, guys. Welcome to the What If Podcast. It's Spencer and Ryan. <laughs> I'm going to start talking about back-end money on ghost production deals, um, and that's not going to be... I'm Ryan, he's Spencer, and he's a ghost. <laughs> some of your favorite, this shouldn't be too surprising, but some of your favorite like EDM DJs and producers and rap producers don't, don't actually, actually make their don't own make the music that is credited to them. And some 22-year-old kid with Ableton on a fucking laptop from 2008 does. And then they pay them money to let them call it theirs, right. to white label it, if you will. But now it's gotten to the point where like produ- ghost producers used to be getting screwed over on that and getting like 500 bucks up front. And then none of the back end money. And now they're getting actual money. They got smart. Like they're the producer. They're just not getting their name on it. I would be fine with that. Right. I would be, that would be even better that no one comes knocking on your door or stops you in the airport and you're still making fucking big ass EDM DJ dollars. Yeah. Um, I've never ghostwritten for anybody and I've never been asked to ghostwrite for anybody. Isn't that basically what editing is though? Yeah, you know what? That's a pretty good point. I've done a shitload of that in my yeah, lifetime. It's the same thing. It's it's help. It's help. You wrote it. I'll help. <laughs> that's that's what it is. I'll fix it. How are you, man? What's going on? I'm doing great. You were you were gone for a little bit. You're back again. I took a little little stroll out to the desert and back. I feel like we travel like a decent amount as individuals. I feel like. We are often I, talking in the open of the show about like, oh, you're back, or I'm back, or we're back, or whatever. I try to. I think it's fun. This tight. I went to uh, Las Vegas to watch basketball games and hang out to with, with the degenerate. homies. Uh, basically, yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. That's the, the city's designed for it. So, oh, is know. it ever? <laughs> is it ever? I got there and uh, got there a little bit before the dudes I was meeting up with. We were all on different flights. And walked through Circus Circus for the first time in my life. Mm. What a fucking fantastic dump of a place. <laughs> in, dump, it, like, is it an sh- actual shithole? Oh, it like, yeah. Okay. Oh, yeah. Tight. I mean, have you seen it? Um, like, just from the outside? Yeah, I've definitely seen it. Have you seen it in the daytime? Mm. Oof. How how much of Ooh. how much of Vegas did we or have we ever seen don't, in the daytime? Don't <laughs> look at things in the daytime in Las Vegas. Um, you need three beer goggles and uh, darkness. Highlight of Circus Circus. There's a room of that place that there's a bar where you can get like five dollar pitchers of beer. That's irresponsible. They have miniature. I love bo- it. It's irresponsible. Miniature quarter operated bowling lanes. Whoa! So it's like a half length bowling lane, and you put quarters in to get a ball. Yep. And there's also a subway in Spencer this Spencer just yepped me because my my uh-huh. mouth dropped when I heard this. Also, the, there's a, sub- a subway sandwich restaurant? Yep. so this room smells like Subway bread at all times. Now, depending That's on... That's not good. I'm just saying say, how weird it is. Okay. Yeah. I wasn't say, saying that as like a perk of being in this room. Got it, because I was going to say, depending on the time I've smelled it, that is either like, oh, no, yum, no, no, fresh no, no. bread, or like, oh, someone's burning cardboard and it hurts my insides. All things Subway are always disgusting. I'm just saying, what a fucking room. To That's, have all these things happening at once. It is, um, <laughs> it's not something anyone's ever said before. It's not mm-hmm. a room that exists anywhere else. Exactly. I can borderline guarantee that. Um, I saw Cher, Cher, I saw Celine Dion. <laughs> oh. And James, what's that late night James guy? Corden. Corden. Yes. Riding a boat across the fountains at Bellagio singing My Heart Will Go On together. Um, 
Were they just like hanging hanging out? Were I they out was to being, dinner? I think it was being filmed. <laughs> okay. But it just happened to be going on as we were walking by. Got it. That was weird. You should have taken one of the miniature bowling balls and just seen if you could get it in the boat. Don't hurt anybody. Like Don't hurt anybody. Like a cannonball. Yeah. <laughs> just get it in the boat. They're not going to the drown. It's balls, a fountain. It's not even deep enough. They could probably stand up in it. The bowling balls were normal size. The lanes are short. Oh, not what I was expecting. The the ball and the pins are the same size. It's just closer to you. I was thinking something like a mix between skee ball and bowling, right? Like, you Isn't know, not like tiny a, ball. Don't people on the East Coast do something like that? What, Isn't um, there like a bowling variation on the East Coast with smaller things? I don't I don't know. Are, are I feel they, like that's a thing I've heard about. Are they smaller people? Maybe. I've been to New York. There's probably man. a range. They look, they look no, it's like a Massachusetts thing or something. All right. New York is a normal place. Other East Coast cities and states get weird. Before we get into today's mystery. Like Connecticut is like its own little world for some reason. Before we get into today's mystery. <laughs> this is today's mystery. What are you talking about? today's mystery. Fuck you. We're, we're talking about bowling mysteries. Massachusetts tiny bowling <laughs> is what I'm Googling right now. Oh my god, it worked! God damn it! You know what? I was just talking about this with somebody well, today. I haven't drank a beer on the podcast in a long time, and it almost went directly into my microphone. Oh boy. And that'd be bad. We got fresh cords. We would have zapped them in the mm. middle of the, of the pod. Um, I've, I was just having this conversation with somebody today. I feel like I have intentionally gotten lazier about Googling because it's kind it's more of fun. Fu- yeah, it's yeah, yeah. fun and it's generally funny and interesting. And Google pop quiz. Yeah. Figure the, this shit out. And the worst part is the worse I try to fuck it up, it's like they get it better. They know exactly what, what you are referring to, my friend, is a thing called candle pin bowling, which, yeah, which yeah, is a variation yeah. on bowling that was primarily Played primarily in the Canadian Maritime provinces and the New England states of the United States. Um, Question, because I'm not the smartest man. Sure. Can you define the word maritime for me? I think it means... I've never quite understood what that means. The sea, or like of the sea. So a maritime city, is that saying like a port city? I would... um, A coastal city? Well... (laughs) Let's solve one more mystery. Real quick the here. word "time" I think has always thrown me off in that. Like, what, what do you mean? I, I guess I assumed when I was younger that it was like related somehow to like to time. Yeah, to a passage of time or like a specific era or something. Hey, and then, I fucking nailed this and one. When I got older, I realized that that didn't make sense contextually, but I still don't really know what the word means. I. I shouldn't have been that surprised that I nailed this one because I did pay a lot of money to become an English major, so I should be getting some of these things correct. Those two are fucking <laughs> Like, how bad is it that I thought I was so dumb that even though I am an English major and like did a decent job at my English major, hey, that man, I was like, I, I could definitely be wrong about this thing. If you ask me anything about. about art or art history, I would probably get it wrong. I haven't thought about that shit since the day I graduated. Uh, this is maritime is connected with the sea, especially in relation to seafaring, commercial, or military activity, like a maritime museum, living or found in or near the sea, or bordering on the sea. So it just means of or related to the oceans. Water adjacent. Well, not freshwater though. Sea adjacent. Hmm. Mm. Yes. Um. But did, yeah. So no. did we tell some maritime stories on the Patreon last week? Boy, did we ever. Okay. That would be an appropriate use of the word. Could you have a, a, an ocean-related story? I think so, but what's the difference between an ocean and a sea? Oh, fuck. Seas are smaller. Well, guys. There are more of them. We've fulfilled our capacity <laughs> for stupidity <laughs> in today's episode, so without even starting the topic. Let's start with the actual topic, good maybe. Um, yeah, but really quickly, though, uh, candlestick bowling, or excuse me, oh, candle right, right, right. pin bowling. That's, that's what we're doing here. Uh, the lane is almost identical to a 10-pin bowling lane, but has an approach of 14 to 16 feet, and then the lane proper, a maple surface. Of course, you fucking Canadians <laughs> have a maple surface bowling alley. Wait. Hey, maple only there, bud. <laughs> so we don't fuck around with our bowling lanes. So this is a Canadian Smells thing. Smells like syrup in this bowling alley. <laughs> This is a Canadian thing that caught on on the east coast of the U.S.? I believe that's correct, I, yes. You said maritime, and then I stopped listening to the rest of the things you said. Sick. And I waited until you were done, and then I asked the question about Sick. the word maritime. Sick. Sorry. No, you're fine. <laughs> um, you know what? 
I'm so gonna give it, up on this. It looks extremely complicated. Okay. There's like different scoring and different pin setups and different pin sizes, and the lanes are a different size. This is fucked up. You, you, you goofy Canadians. We love you. I'm just gonna imagine the thing that they do at basketball games where they put the mascot on a giant slingshot and a scooter and launch him into ten garbage cans and imagine it's like that. Um, I think perfect. Cool. <laughs> Mix a little uh, Trailer Park Boys shopping carts in, and I think you've, Ooh. I think you've got, you've got it pretty Sick. much figured out. You want to talk about UFOs? UFOs. Um, so we we need to do a little bit of history on this one. Not history. Doth we? Uh, well, we we just need to we need to get a very quick. Um, is it trash on Project Blue Book? Because mm. you recently the, finished the new History Channel series, Project right, right. Blue Book, which is part of our inspiration for talking about this topic today. And uh, we're gonna do our first two parter in a while, where we're gonna talk about uh, one Project Blue Book case this week and a different one next week. Yes, mostly. Mostly. Blue Book Adjacent. Blue Book Adjacent, yes. But you watched it. You watched the History Channel show. All of it? You watched it all? Yeah, I finished it. Yeah, okay. yeah. Um, I've had some time to watch some TV for the first time in a while because I've been hanging out with a small animal that needs things constantly, and then mm. when he falls asleep, I watch TV sometimes. Mm. Um, with your headphones in very carefully. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Don't wake up. Don't wake up. Catching up on some things. I'm finally finish, finishing Adventure Time. Um mm. I've been going through the shy. Yeah, yeah you mentioned it, that on the Patreon last week. Trying to week, finish it before the new season comes out, April seventh. Mm. Um, <laughs> we were not paid to say that. <laughs> He's just excited about it. I mean, we would be paid. to I say have that. various reasons for promoting the show. One of them is that it's tight and fun to watch. Also, I may have some music in it. There we go. <laughs> Chance York may have some music in it. There we go. Friend of the pod. Um, I've been watching Project Blue Book and. Yeah, I watched, it's 10 episodes, I watched it over the course of a week or so. Oh, it's 10, I didn't realize it was 10 episodes. It's 10, like, hour-ish long episodes, and cool, it's cool. it's loosely based on the actual Project Blue Book, which was the U.S. Air Force's investigation of all things UFO-related in the late 50s, or early 50s to late 60s-ish. Started in 1952, and they shut it down in 1969. Cool. And it focuses on a character who is, well, is J. Allen Hynek, um, but sort of a fictionalized version of J. Allen Hynek and a Air Force officer who go around investigating weird UFO cases and trying to explain what happened. Um, it's pretty damn good in terms of just like being a well-made, entertaining TV show. It's great. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's got a bit of like an X-Files vibe to it in terms of like two people investigating paranormal UFO related shit. One of them is very skeptical. One of them is very open-minded. Mm-hmm. Hijinks ensue production value wise. And like, it's really well done. Most of the acting is, is good. It's written pretty well. It's not super accurate in terms of like what Project Blue Book actually was or which cases they investigated or what J. Allen Hynek was probably actually like. It's a a very fictionalized version of events, but for the better in this case, like it makes for good TV Yeah, if you're not trying to actually learn information. I think, yeah, I think the, um, so I read this article on the, uh, on the New York Times called, um, let me pull the title quick, Project Blue Book is based on a true UFO story. Here it is. And um, they talked about Project Blue Book and its reality. This article I found was actually- Are you, are you saying the show or the actual like- Sorry, both. Okay. They they talk about the show and the actual event that it was based on. And it was actually, um, it was the, the article that I found was co-written by- some of the folks who talked about the Pentagon program, the secret Pentagon program that we talked about on the show. Which we can get to later, ago. but Project Blue Book was one in a series of government slash Air Force-led UFO investigation right. projects. It, right. Blue Book was the longest running, but there was Sign before it and... Purge? Was it? I think it's Purge. Something like that. Let me pull it up quick. Um, as far as I can oh, tell, sorry, grudge. There it is. The 
our government slash military in the U.S. has been investigating UFO reports since the 40s. Yep. And every decade or so, or sometimes less, when said investigative branch or project becomes public knowledge, they say they stopped it and then just start a different one with a new name. Right. And so the stuff that came out with the AAITP or whatever shit that then transitioned to a lot of what To The Stars is doing now Mm -hmm. seems to have likely just been the most recent iteration of that series that's been going on since the 40s. Right, right. It it's funny I saw that too with the whole like shutting down and setting up of these programs and it makes very little sense to me other than maybe some of the like potential inefficiencies of government to be like like why are we setting up a group of people getting them funding calling it a thing putting people to work on it and then being like this isn't worth it shut it down and then 6 well, months later they're like hey you know what we should do and then they get people and they get funding and they name it and then they're like Wait, no, that was a bad idea the first time. And then they just keep doing this over and over I, again. To me, it reads as like a, a PR move. Like you you think there is value in investigating this stuff. But once it gets too big or But you want it to be or... on the DL. Yeah, you don't want people to know that you're investigating it, much less like how and where and yeah. when and why. But then like Blue Book itself was running for 17 years. Yeah, but it was not... I mean, I don't think there was much information about it when it was happening. Sure. We have that information now because that stuff has been declassified 50 years later. Sure. But I think it was pretty low-key at the time, and a lot of the the government's reasoning for it was like, we want to prove that these things aren't real or aren't a threat of some kind. Right. Um, not like, we want to go find aliens and recover UFOs. And you got to think, like, it started in, I mean, the first record of, like, official government or military-led program investigating UFOs was, what, 47 or 48? I think that's right. So you're fresh out of World War One, mm-hmm. Two. Sorry, two. And, I mean, basically all this stuff came to came to exist and then existed during the Cold War when there was a pretty good reason to want to know what was going on in the skies and what technology was available and who had it and what could it do. And yeah, like, no doubt. I mean, there's a lot of like intelligence and military value to some of the stuff they were doing. For sure. And and you're also at a time where you're inherently super distrustful of, of everyone, yeah. everyone, because, Absolutely. you know, I mean, post world war two, like on a global scale, there was, plenty of distrust to go around you think about no doubt i mean uh sign was the first one right and that that started in 48 48 yeah so we're talking two to three years removed from the end of world war ii right yeah there's a lot of shit to be worried about yeah (laughs) or want to be like informed about and aware of no doubt no doubt and also you know i think like i think in some ways I don't know. I've heard people talk about World Wars 1 and 2 as like this globalization concept, you know? I mean, there was a lot of traveling and understanding of cultures in ways that we hadn't really done because we were literally putting tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands of people into other countries and flying to different places and creating cultural stories and stuff like that. So I feel like there's a lot of, um, what's the word I'm looking for? I don't know, like newness to mm. the world. Like people were being exposed to these countries that um, they the had really getting had a, smaller in a way. Yeah. Th- thank yeah. you. That's better. The world was getting smaller. And in, in that there was a lot of inherent like confusion, you know, photos from the front lines were like, that's what Germany looks like. And so much of America had never even fucking seen what Germany looked. You know what I mean? A lot of that is just technology related too. Oh, right. Absolutely. We're we're starting to just have more access to the world because of developing technology. You know, it's easier to fly across the Atlantic. It's easier to get photo and video from one place to another quickly. Communication is improving rapidly. For sure. You know, I think a lot of it is just that. Right. Yeah, um, and in all of that, you know, is inherently like 
confusion and distrust and right. suspicion. Not to mention, like, and, we were all at war with each other just a minute ago. <laughs> yeah. Yesterday. And a whole bunch of people died. To bring it back around to the um, what you said about them kind of fictionalizing these accounts, this that article that I brought up actually said it really well. I pulled this quote um, they wrote, uh, the history series predictably sensationalizes and over-dramatizes case investigations and the historical figures involved, adding many story elements that simply never happened. It's already hard enough for those trying to understand the truth about government involvement with UFOs without mixing fact and fiction. So and I, I guess that, I think that is a valid complaint because the way it's set up, each episode looks at a specific case that actually was investigated by one of these organizations whether it be sign or blue book or grudge right um so like the first one is this case that we're going to talk about today uh, that happened in 48 uh and they they present it like this is a real thing it happened in this place it went like this yep and if you go google that thing you'll find information about it right because it did happen right but the version that they're presenting is not necessarily based in reality or it's loosely based in reality, right? They've, they've punched it up to make it a TV better worthy. story. Yeah. yeah. Right. And so whether it be the, the Gorman dogfight that we're going to talk about, or like they do the Flatwood monster and the Lubbock lights and all mm-hmm. these cases that like were really investigated and did really happen. Right. And they, fictionalize and sensationalize it and I could see that being frustrating as someone who's genuinely interested in this stuff or especially as someone who experienced or knows someone who experienced or is somehow like actually tied to one of these events right that could be extremely frustrating I, I get that yeah and I yeah and I think like there is something to be said for it coming out on a channel called the history channel to be I like, I mean, that ship has fucking sailed. I know that's, <laughs> I know, I know that's true, but it's just like, you know, it is a channel that is very often showing like world war two documentaries and like things is like it? that. Well, when they're not showing, ancient, when they're not showing, I, mean, aliens. I, I feel like that's at least 10 years ago at this point. I mean, that stuff is definitely there. I just don't know if it's like, you know, if it's like, it, their main thing that they do anymore but like I do think there's something it to be was said for at it. one point it yeah. was at some point yeah. so they're calling it the history channel and they're telling historical stories sort of but they're also dramatizing them in the process it's just I don't it's, know it's, it's like, extra messy in the whole UFO field because there's so much confusion and bad information and blurring of fact and fiction to begin with right that doing it intentionally but presenting it in a like somewhat or like taking real cases and presenting them in a fictionalized way is extra confusing and misleading because it's hard to find facts to begin with in a lot of these stories. Totally. So, so I get that. We're not going to tell the Project Blue Book version, uh, or excuse me, not the Project Blue Book television show version. Well, so here's today. The, I mean, here's the first issue: the pilot of, like, as in the first episode of the TV show Project <laughs> Blue Book. Fuck, this is confusing. <laughs> There's also a pilot in an airplane in this episode today. The first episode of the History Channel's show called Project Blue Book focuses on the Gorman dogfight. And that's the story we're going to tell today. Yeah. That happened in 1948. Yeah. Four years before Project Blue Book was formed. Right. So if that was investigated, it was by Project Sign. So like right out of the gate, facts are... Goofy. Goofy. Yeah. They're close, sort of. Yeah. And like Heineck didn't investigate this case. No. And it, on the show, Heineck is going out there and interviewing the pilot. You right. Know? So it's like, I, I could see being frustrated with that aspect of it. And and like, you know, the Gorman dogfight came up in the Project Blue Book report, but it wasn't, it wasn't like around the time that the, you know, they were looking at incidents that had happened before they had been formed as an organization. Yeah. Um, and like honestly, Sign and Blue Book were probably the same thing with a different name. Yeah, Sign, Grudge, Blue Book—they were all kind of cousins. As for this actual story, uh, October first, nineteen forty-eight, in Fargo, North Dakota. Hey, hey, not too far from us. Our brothers to the north. Um, George Gorman was a twenty-five-year-old pilot in the North Dakota National Guard. Not to be confused with George Foreman. <laughs> Correct. If you thought that this was a grill selling 
Air Force pilot. I like that that became his legacy somehow. That he was one of the greatest boxers of all time. And but now he sells shitty grills that every college student owns. It's because I for sure owned one in college. They're, they just appear in a college house. I don't even know. Like I never bought one. There was one in every house I lived in. Here's your lanyard. Um, mm-hmm. You're gonna put your dorm keys on it, and here you just get one at orientation. Here's your George Gorman grill. It's for it's for <laughs> cooking just, aliens. <laughs> So he's a fighter pilot in World War II, and then after the war ended, he enlisted in the National Guard. Um, He was doing some sort of cross-country flight with uh, a few other pilots and a few other planes. I don't. I couldn't find what they were actually doing. If it was just like a a training run of some sort, or that was what I understood it to be was a National Guard training run. Okay. So at about eight thirty, they got back to Fargo, and the other pilots landed. Um, Gorman decides that. Because it was a nice night and relatively early, he was going to keep flying and get some extra like night flight hours. Yeah, I guess you have to, I didn't know this, but it makes sense. You have to clock a certain amount of like night flying hours to be capable of night flying like missions or whatever. Mm. So um, we got to get Mason on the, back on the show to discuss all things all, aviation related things one flying. of these days. Yeah. Um, but yeah, so... It makes sense. He's like, oh, it's because it was super clear out that night, too. So clear, good weather. And he's like, shit, I need to, you know. It's only 830. Right. I need to stack some hours. So I'm going to stick around for a few hours out of here. So about nine o'clock, he sees a ball of light out of the window of his plane. Um, And I have his description of this ball of light. He said it was a uh, six to eight inches across, like in diameter clear white, completely round, and had sharp edges. I think meaning that as opposed to like if it was a single light source um, that was, I don't don't know how to describe it. Um, Seeing a single light source at night, you might see like sort of a halo around it or like a, a rough fuzzy edge to it. Yeah. He was saying this was a hard edge, like it was something containing... Like a hard surface containing a light source of some kind. Right. It's like when you're driving at night and you see a street light and it's got like the kind of the the shootouts around mm-hmm. it. It's he was saying it was less like that and more like the moon, if you will. Yeah. Um at nine oh seven, he called or he radioed air traffic control at Hector Airport, which is in Fargo, and where he was going to be landing later and where the other flights had just landed, asking if there was any traffic in the area that he should be aware of. Uh, they confirmed that there was not, except for a small private plane at about 500 feet below him. A Piper Cub. Yeah. That's a cute little name for an uh-huh. airplane. A uh-huh. Piper Cub. It's like a, a single engine, small plane with a propeller on the front. It's much slower than his plane. It's like a total yeah. recreational two-seater. Um, also, this was 1948. So imagine like a cute old-timey plane and you, yeah. you basically got you, it. You kind of nailed it. Yeah. yeah. We'll We'll talk about the people who are flying that plane later. Uh, well, Gorman actually radioed said plane to see if they were also seeing what he was seeing. And the pilot, who was Dr. A.D. Cannon, and his one passenger both confirmed that they were indeed seeing the same thing. Um, the air traffic controllers at the tower also confirmed that they saw something weird happening. Um, it was Lloyd Jensen and H.E. Johnson working that night. Uh, Johnson said, quote, after passing to the east of the airport, it seemed, he's referring to this ball of light, mm-hmm. after passing to the east of the airport, it seemed to take a northwest heading. The object appeared to be at about 2,000 feet and traveling at quite an excessive speed compared to the Piper Cub that was east of the field at the time. Yep. No definite outline could be identified. He's talking about the light again. Um, both the object and the Piper Cub were sighted at the same time. So I think he's saying that to say I wasn't mistaking this for another airplane. I could see the other plane also. I could see this weird ball of light. Right. And one of the things I think is interesting, just really quickly, so we've got now five total witnesses because you've got two men in the Piper Cub who are seeing this thing. You've got George Foreman Grill himself inside (laughs) of the airplane, so that's up to three. There were also... um, well, and the two air traffic controllers. There were also two air traffic controllers. Oh yeah, and that and that, ta- and that takes us to five. Yeah. Um. So, 
I have a quote from the other air traffic controller as well, if you'd like that. Yep. Um, Lloyd Jensen said that through binoculars, quote, he sighted an object or a light traveling at a high rate of speed, apparently on a southwest heading. The F-51, which was Gorman's plane, was some distance behind, and the object was traveling fast enough to increase the spacing between itself and the fighter jet. The object appeared to be only a round light, perfectly formed with no fuzzy edges or rays leaving its body. No other shape was observed. The main identifying characteristic what characteristic was the high rate of speed at which it was traveling. So he saw a little ball of light moving faster than a fighter jet chasing it. Yes. Through a pair of binoculars. And one of the things I find interesting about all of the witnesses is um the description is really consistent in all of the newspaper articles and mm-hmm. everything. No one was like, well, I saw, uh, it was, it was orange or I think there was two lights. Like it was, everybody saw kind of the same thing. That's a pretty high caliber of witness here too. When we're talking about everyone involved was, well, I guess I don't know who the passenger in the private, the small private plane was, but you got two pilots and two air traffic controllers all reporting, seeing the same thing at the same time. And, and describing it identically, essentially. Yeah. And, and, and one of the things I think is fascinating and this will come back when, later as well but i think it's also fascinating that they all remarked at the high rate of speed because again to your point about these guys being um all you know people who are well versed in the skies um for them to remark on that thing specifically i think is going to be interesting when we talk about what people said did or didn't happen i don't want to get there yet so i'm going to wait but Um, I think that's a very important detail. So after confirming with the tower that they too were seeing this thing, but did not have any idea what it was, Gorman tells the tower that he's going to pursue the object to try and figure out what it is. Bro, (laughs) I read that and I was like, all right, this dude's kind of, he's 25 years old. That's some like fighter pilot ego shit too, though. Like this shit can't outrun me. You know? I'm flying a fucking jet. You know what he was probably doing? He he was back from World War II, and he was like, man, flying's been pretty boring since I used to be in <laughs> I'm God- trying to shoot something. <laughs> I've been in goddamn dogfights <laughs> with German airplanes. Like, let me do something interesting. <laughs> this looks like a good time. He just peels off and goes after it. So he floors it, which uh, at, in his F-51 was about 400 miles an hour. Yikes. And he quickly realizes that not only is he not gaining on this thing, he's actually losing ground on whatever it is, or yep. losing air, losing sky. You know, I like losing ground. It's, <laughs> it is the expression. I see why you don't like it right now. So he decides that instead of just trying to like straight up chase it, he's going to cut it off somehow. And so he makes a 90 degree turn to try and approach it head on. Yes. And as he's flying towards it, it goes above his plane. He estimates about 500 feet above him. Yes. Now, which was, I think, the closest look he got at this thing. Yeah. There's um, what's the name of the book that got written about this whole story? Um, the report on unidentified flying objects. Is that right? Yeah, by uh, Edward J. Ruppelt. Mm-hmm. Um. In that book, Ruppelt... I think that was the first, like, at least public telling of this story. Okay. In Ruppelt's version, he says it was something, like, within feet of his, the top of his plane, which... I mean, everything's within feet. It's just a matter of how many. Well, shots! In this case, it was 500. Yes. (laughs) Dude, that's that's good. Everywhere's walking distance if you got the time. (laughs) Facts. I think his implication was within like single digit feet, um, which sounds like maybe a dramatization, but I'm going to trust the guy who was there and flying the plane. Real talk. I also think it's worth noting that, um, this guy, George Gorman saw this for forge, forge George men, forge George men. Is it George Foreman who named all his kids? George forge George men's meat plane. Um, Put it on the list. <laughs> Forge Georgeman's meat plane. Correct. Yeah. Or maybe just meat plane. That one's pretty good. Jefferson meat, meat plane. <laughs> uh, okay. Mm-hmm. Um, 
What what spelling of plane is that? Sorry. Keep going. <laughs> um he saw so when he first when he first saw it off the I think it was the right wing of his plane, which was to the west, which means he would have been flying south at the time. When he first saw it, he estimated it at about a thousand yards away, I think was what the first thing he said was. I don't know. But I find it interesting because a lot of times the UFO stories that we hear, these people only really get one good look at them, and it's yeah. generally from one distance. So we often have this... And not, talked, a, not a person who's trained to judge distance also most of the time. Right. And on the show we've talked about before that, you know, depending on where you are, what time it is, what's in the background, it can be pretty easy, especially as just a regular pedestrian, to completely fuck up how I, far away something is. I forget which documentary it is now, but there's... I think we watched it together at one point. There's a documentary, and it's actually shot in Minneapolis. They're at um, one of the lakes. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. And they put like this big-ass kite way up in the sky yes. and just have people who are walking by try and estimate how high it is. That's right. It's around Lake Calhoun. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Oh, right. It's not that anymore. Yeah. It's a better name than that <laughs> fuck, fucking asshole. <laughs> they Makaska. Thank you. Um, and they try and just have people walking by like, hey, how high up do you think that thing is? Yeah. And the estimates, it was like... Everywhere. I don't remember the the specifics, but it was an insanely large range. The spectrum and, was awful. And no one was close. <laughs> yeah. And this is something that was at like hundreds of feet. I mean, we're not talking thousands or tens of thousands. We're like... Yeah, yeah. It's a kite. Yeah. And people were, some people were like, I don't know, like 50. And other people were like, oh, 30,000. It's like, a, it's, like a, it's probably got to be at least about a mile up there now, doesn't it? Like pe- people are just totally fucking it up. Because you don't know this, you don't know the size of the thing. You right. don't know, you know, you, you have no frame of reference. You have nothing right. to compare it to. You're not trained to even, yeah. you know, do that. So I think one of the things I find really interesting about this case specifically is Gorman not only saw it from afar, made an analysis of its size, but also flew around and near this thing for, what was the total of this experience? Like 27 minutes? Something like that, yeah. 27 minutes he was having, and we'll tell more of it, but like he had both far away and close up and from the side and from the front. Like he had a ton of different perspectives to be able to make his judgment. And you have two people on the ground observing it at the same time who are also trained observers. And who are also saying like, no, it wasn't plane sized. It was definitely smaller than a plane. It was like a small ball of light. Right. Like, so and another pilot at a different angle. Right. Yes. So like all those things combined make this really interesting, at least from my perspective on like, we don't get that very often. Yeah. Uh, so he he passes this thing at about 500 feet uh, above him, and didn't he say he kind of like tried to dive out? Honestly, like they were almost he he made it seem like they were on a straight up collision course, yeah. and that he like dove out of it so that he wouldn't run into it. He also noted at this point that the the whatever this thing was, as it moved faster. The light got brighter. Yeah, and I don't think we mentioned this earlier, but he also said he noticed that the light was blinking or like turning on and off at certain intervals or at certain points Mm -hmm. so that he would like catch it and then it would go in and out or whatever. But yeah, that it would grow brighter um, at like different velocities. Uh, After he passes it, he loses it for a minute and then makes... uh He sees it coming back at him, so and he hadn't turned, so he assumed that this thing turned and was coming back towards him. Yep. Um, And as it's approaching him, it suddenly starts going like straight up. He decides that he's going to pursue it and follows it up to about 14,000 feet. This motherfucker is just like, he's in from jump. He hey, wants, man, if you're going to be up there just flying around for the fuck of it, you may as well have something to do, right? Th- this fool's out here like Harry Potter after the golden snitch, bro. Just like sticking his hand out the airplane window like, let me get that fucking light. If you have a chance to catch a UFO, <laughs> fuck fucking yeah. pull it in your cockpit and yeah. bring it home, bud. Roll that window down and grab that snitch. <laughs> hey, man. <laughs> Hop in. <laughs> We're going back to my shelf. Um, 
No, I don't know. It was nothing, man. I didn't catch. I didn't catch anything. I didn't see it. And about, I'm surprised the uh, the History Channel show didn't go at that angle. <laughs> that's what. That's how it disappeared. Mm-hmm. Gorman never spoke of it again. But he had a huge bulge in his pocket, <laughs> and it was blinking on and off. And his house turned into like a metallic goo. <laughs> Uh, he follows it up to 14,000 feet and then his plane stalls and he's forced to uh, eventually land. Um, he estimated at 14,000 feet when his plane stalled that this thing was still about 2,000 feet above him vertically. So this yeah. thing very rapidly climbed from, I don't know what he started at, uh, about 5,000 feet. This thing very rapidly climbed to, a, he estimated about 16,000 feet Yeah, and he was not able to pursue it farther at that point yeah the the last thing uh i read that he saw was um he was at 14 and then saw it below him at 11 and he dove and he dove down to get to it and when he got down there he said it made another vertical climb climbed past him and got it that's when he was basically diving he lost sight of it in his dive, and that's when he decided to to be like, all right, I don't know what the fuck anymore, but I'm going to go home. And that happened at about 9.27. Yeah, so about so, a 27-minute total endeavor from like first sighting to, because it was right at 9, right, that he saw the first time? I, I don't know. He the, the first radio transmission to air traffic control was at 9.07. Okay. So I think we're assuming a few minutes before that, he probably first saw it. And was like, hmm. So somewhere in the neighborhood fuck? of 20 to maybe 30 minutes total for this this whole encounter. Sure. Um, Gorman's statement on this whole ordeal, I'm going to read the whole thing because I think it's all relevant. Dude, it's great, man. He says, quote, I'm convinced that there was definite thought behind its maneuvers, it being this ball of light. I'm further convinced that the object was governed by the laws of inertia because its acceleration was rapid but not immediate, and although it was able to turn fairly tight at considerable speed, it still followed a natural curve. When I attempted to turn with the object, I blacked out temporarily due to excessive speed. I'm in fairly good physical condition, and I do not believe there are many, if any, pilots who could withstand the turn and speed affected by the object and remain conscious." The object was not only able to outturn and outspeed my aircraft, but was able to attain a far steeper climb and was able to maintain a constant rate of climb far in excess of my aircraft. So basically saying, I don't know what the fuck this thing was, but it was moving like you would expect an object to move just faster. Right. And faster to a degree that I don't think a human being could have been doing it. Right. Not to mention this thing is eight inches across, so clearly there's not a human being inside of it. Right. But this thing appeared to be intelligently controlled, obeying the laws of physics, and but not have a, a person or a physical thing inside of it. Right. And obeying the laws of physics in a way that go way beyond even our current technological understandings of, like... I mean, I guess I don't know enough to speak to that, but... I, my takeaway from that there's is... There's nothing that we as a society know of that is eight inches wide and can move at the rates that he's talking about. Uh, maybe. I mean, I, I guess I just don't know enough to say yes or no to that. I don't know, but I'm also extremely confident that like, like there's not an there's not an airplane that is in that the is public the, that domain. Is, that is the most white male statement you've ever made in your life. <laughs> I don't know, like, but I'm extremely confident. No, no, no. I'm just saying. I'm a like, big white man. I'm just, I'm just saying there's not anything that like technologically we are aware of as a species that can move like that at 600 miles per hour. Well, that's what I'm saying. We don't know this. The, we don't know the actual speed. We know it was faster than him at 400 miles an hour. Also, it's the 1940s. Sure. There are plenty of things that can move faster than 400 miles an hour now. Yes, but not things that can move like with that level of dexterity, I think, that he was communicating. Sure. Um, I guess my one of my takeaways is like this is a physical object of some kind as opposed yeah. to some UFO reports where things will be, you know, you'll hear people say it was to my right and then suddenly it was you know 3000 feet to the left it seemed to just blink in and out it was yeah yeah you know you hear these things that sound like more of a almost an interdimensional thing or 
things that clearly aren't following our laws of physics. Right. I think counter to that, he's saying this was a real object. Right. Doing things that theoretically a real object could do. Right. Just not things my plane or other planes I know of could do. For sure. I liked the part where he said um, it was... uh the its acceleration was rapid but not immediate i thought that was really interesting so it wasn't like like if it were a light a light or you know think of like a laser pointer right you can point a laser pointer from here to there and it moves in no time at all he's saying no it like it took a you know it took a this thing had some physicality some mass right. of some kind to it he also described it in another location not in this quote but in another location that there was no um there was no tail to it so that's an interesting thing that um to the to the light to the light as in mm. so what they talk about a lot you know if something has an engine right there's some sort of oh i see you know a rocket propelled something that yeah, would yeah, be yeah, tailing yeah. off of the back of whatever is propelling it in those directions this wasn't powered in the way that we were powering th- rockets in the 40s right yeah, and yeah. and nobody nobody claimed to or, see any kind of tail both from the light but also from you know any kind of like engine or heat si- signature or whatever which mm-hmm. i guess it was dark so that'd be hard but um there was a um there was an article that came out recently because of the project blue book television series uh in the bismarck tribune that revisited the case because it happened in north dakota and the you know the television shows bringing the case back up in the town yeah. and stuff um and there was an interesting quote in there too that i think kind of lends itself to the quote that um that you just read about or from gorman uh where he says in this article it's called a uh, dogfight with ufo recounted by new tv show is the bismarck tribune article it says uh investigators noted that gorman was a credible sincere witness quote who was considerably puzzled by his experience and made no attempt to blow his story up end quote gorman told friends that quote he was never convinced that he had been dueling with a lighted balloon for 27 minutes end quote and that gets to the Air Force's investigation and explanation for this event. Yeah, one, and I should really quickly. The one thing that I've also found pretty interesting, and also goes to his credibility and sincerity. They said that uh, Gorman was so shook by the whole experience that he had a hard time landing. That he had to actually, like, before he mm. actually landed, he had to fly around a little bit and like get his shit back together before he could put the plane down safely. So he was so freaked out that he needed a hot second, which again, like going back to the, as someone he's who seen is, a lot, he was in fucking world war two. Right. <laughs> he, uh, he's trained to see and deal with things in the sky and it took him to that place. Also, he says he blacked out while flying an airplane, which I would imagine is not a fun experience. Oh my God. Can you imagine <laughs> you come to, Oh man! Can you, you come to an installed airplane waking yeah. up and you're just falling backwards and like mm-hmm. thousands of pounds mm-hmm. of metal. Ugh. Yuck. Gross. Uh, when I landed in Vegas, I was the last flight that was allowed to land in Vegas for several hours because they had like crazy storms. Oh shit. I didn't know any of this while we were landing and our pilot didn't communicate anything. He just every like few minutes would get on the air on the radio and be like, uh, seatbelts. Mm. And then she'd go back and be like, oh, great. We're, we're about to get bounced around for the next few minutes. Right, right. And while we're landing, it was hailing in Vegas and like raining and hailing and crazy winds. And have you ever been on a flight where they got to land the shit like basically sideways? No. <laughs> God damn it. Spencer so knows this. I don't know if I've ever talked about yeah, this on you the show. Flying, right? I'm not yeah, a good flyer. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, that shit's always kind of fun to me because I'm like, well, fun? Yeah. Okay. Worst case scenario, I'm in a plane crash, right? <laughs> what, the, what the fuck is that sentence? Hold on. Hold on. <laughs> Worst case scenario, I'm fucking dead. Well, in a plane crash, you got two options, right? One, you die. Not going to matter to me. <laughs> I'm not even going to know, right? I mean... It's going to suck for like three other people if I die. It's fine. (laughs) I'm not going to know the difference. If I don't Uh, die, great story. My fucking plane crashed. Here I am. Cool story, right? I I mean... 
I think there are. All, all right, I'm not. I'm I mean, not there, necessarily there's obviously not. some in between. I was right? just going to say yeah, there's yeah, some yeah, hard yeah. in between. I'm there horrifically that would not be. injured for the rest of my life. Right, yeah. right, 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 right. I watched 50 people catch on fire on the uh, yeah yeah right. on the Las Vegas Strip. It was also, not fun. Also, that's not going to happen. Whatever. <laughs> You're right. It's not. But uh, yeah, we had to do this shit where like I'm I'm sitting by the window and I'm looking out as we're coming in, and I can see see the. Uh, Runway, that's the word. That's the word. And I can see we start out parallel to it, and then as we're getting closer and closer, we're at like a Nobby. 15 degree angle to the to the runway. Nobby. And we landed at like a fucking 30 degree angle to the runway and just like slammed that shit back as soon as we touched down. Absolutely not. And that was my first time flying Spirit Airlines. I... Fuck that shit. <laughs> <laughs> you know, the best part about Flying Spirit Airlines is even if you had gotten into a plane crash, nothing would have happened because you're so tightly packed in between two seats. It's just like you just land and there's no jolt. You're just like, and you're good. True. Uh, but yeah, the, the homie was coming in from LA on the flight right behind me mm -hmm. and they wouldn't let them land. And so they were circling Vegas until the weather cleared up and they oh. ran out of fuel and had to land in Phoenix instead. So he oh, was supposed to go God. LA to Vegas and ended up in Phoenix somehow. And then had to drive from Phoenix? No, eventually got a flight from Phoenix back to Vegas. But I was oh. like, at that point, like, brutal. That's farther than LA. Just go back to LA. At least LA is LA. Is Nobody that... wants to hang out in Phoenix. Shots. Shots fired. I mean, people who live in Phoenix don't want to hang out in Phoenix. <laughs> Uh, I've looked at our stats. I, we got like six people who we'll live be, in there. We'll be fine. I'm sorry. You guys are probably great. It's, you I've guys heard, are great. I, I've honestly never been to your town. I've heard it's horrible. I've heard most people there are retired. <laughs> and you have a basketball team that's got Devin Booker on it. Yeah. Um, anyway, the Air Force investigated this UFO sighting that this man had. Year. Um, I guess within a few hours. Project Sign was was on the scene. I read that too. Which I don't understand how that's possible. I don't either. Because first of all, you're in fucking Bismarck, North Dakota. Uh, Fargo. Excuse, excuse me. Excuse, excuse you. me. Bismarck should be in wrote the article. It's just offend Fargo. all of our listeners at the same time. No Fargo. Which, by the way, guys, it's North Dakota. It's not in Minnesota. Okay, just really quick. You seen the movie Fargo? Oh right, right, right. I mean, it's it's basically don't 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 you dare. Um, no, but like Fargo, North Dakota is not close to Washington, D.C. Right. Um, so even if you get word of this immediately, getting to Fargo from any city where people would conceivably be like, yeah, you're in the basically the northernmost central most part of the country. So right. if you're coming from any major population center. It's not You're really, looking at least like a three-hour flight from the, almost anywhere. Yeah, the only thing I can imagine would be like, was there some base in? I mean, like around us, right, like Patterson, in the Twin maybe? Cities, or Ohio. maybe that. Well, last shit was yeah. But like you know may, maybe and maybe they sent like a representative to go have a conversation. Maybe not like the main people. I don't know. That yeah, was the only and, thing and I, could I honestly think of. don't know who all was involved with Project Sign. So yeah. I guess we're assuming that that was a DC-based thing, but I don't actually know that. But I, regardless, I find it fascinating that the story told by the witnesses and the participants in it was enough for them to like rally motherfuckers and be like, "Oh, we're going there like right now." I mean, when you think about the witnesses involved, like I don't know how you could do much better. You have right. two air traffic controllers and you have two pilots, right? So everyone's who stone cold sober, the same thing. Yeah. super versed in their jobs. Yeah. Um. So they interviewed Gorman as well as Dr. Cannon, who was flying the uh, Piper Cub, cutest airplane ever, Hell yeah. uh, and the air traffic controllers from the Fargo airport. Um, in addition, they ran a Geiger counter over Gorman's plane yeah. and found that it was significantly more radioactive than other fighters, which had not flown for several days. Yes. Originally, they concluded that this meant something, that it had been near some radioactive source right. or an atomic, atomically powered something. Right, right, right. Um, I don't know enough to really know how accurate that is. And I also don't, we don't have actual readings from A, his plane, and B, any sort of control airplane that hadn't been 
flown recently. Well, well, no, the, I think that was the point of doing the control was the planes that hadn't flown recently. I'm just saying we don't have actual numbers on any of that. We just have right a quote significant difference. And but I think the other control that needed to be part of that was. Did you test an airplane that had flown recently but had right. not had this experience? Right. Is it possible that airplanes flying at I mean higher elevations are just naturally exposed to more radiation? Which we know from is the true. Sun? Yeah, when you get when you fly, you take on radiation. That's I mean, why I, I don't know to what degree and at what elevations and shit. But. I know it's a it's a hazard of like there's a certain number of hours that you can clock as a uh, flight attendant or a pilot that. Um, like exposes you to safe numbers of radiation. Like I know that's a thing that they talk about is how much radiation those people take on by being up in the sky like that. So, so it's an interesting thing that they tested maybe, yeah. maybe, but they didn't like do it in a way where I feel like we get data out of it where it's like, Whoa, that thing was exposed to a high radiation source or something like that. Relative to other planes that have been flown in the same area, the right. same day or something. Yeah. Right. Um, just real quick. The, History Channel version of, of events. Yes. <laughs> is that Gorman both shot at and received fire from this object. Yeah. That J. Allen Hynek personally interviewed George Gorman. Wow. Uh, and sat in the cockpit of the airplane, which had taken on fire. Mm. Um, they ran a Geiger counter over it, and it was like, oh, crazy, off the charts, weird yeah, yeah. sound design, beeping noises. And also, George Gorman went crazy and had to be institutionalized because Ooh. PTSD. Yikes. Mm-hmm. Yeah, none no, of the, just to be clear, none of those things are true. None of that happens, yeah. That's just the TV version and why some wow, people are annoyed at some of the writing and uh, sensationalizing that takes place in this Project Blue Book Yikes. TV show. Yeah, they went off the handle on that. I mean, but if you don't know the stories or if you know the stories and don't care, which is sort of how I went into it. It's like, I'm yep. vaguely familiar with most of the topics they covered. Yeah. I'm not looking to it as like a documentary or like a, a source of new information or something. Sure. I'm looking at it as like, I'm interested in these topics and a fictionalized account of these topics will be entertaining to me. And it's super entertaining. I, I definitely get that. And I definitely, um, you know, I I see where that take comes from. I just I have I've complained it's, about this on the show maybe before. Maybe irresponsible, too. also. Yeah, yeah I've yeah. complained about this on the show before, where it's like it feels like this is this is a thing that we find fascinating, not just because it's fun. I mean, it is fun, but also like because like I want to know. You know, there, I'm there's something real there's happening. Something real, right? To some degree, in some of these cases, right. And and doing things like this, when you put it out on the History Channel and you call it a true story, and then you say an alien craft shot at you, it's like, well, how it's, well, it's, how do people who aren't you, who don't have the same set of, it's almost like I, um, it's hard too though because like what was my initial interest in these things? A lot of time it was fictionalized versions of them. Sure, you know, I, me seeing X Files prompted me to look into some of the actual things that that show was based on. Yeah. Right? I, to, so it can go both ways. I get that. I guess I just, I feel like the, the hard thing about, you know, this whole, this whole thing that we, we talk about and we explore is so much of it is if you can just eke 10 or 20 or 30% more out of what actually is reportable then you'll get more juice from the world. It's, and it's so messy too, though, because what is actually reportable is really unknown a lot of the time. I know, but I'm just saying in this specific situation, I feel like the real story is really fascinating and very strange and very interesting. And yeah, like, did it did it need it to be a fictionalized version of the story? Probably. It probably needed a little bit of a pump up to make it what they wanted it to be. But I wish that they or someone would tell the non-pumped up version in its in its reality but in that, its entirety. But that information is out there. No, no doubt. Like I mean, you can go find. I mean, yes, the, the it would have been a regurgitation for sure. The, the U.S. government has declassified all the Project Blue Book related stuff. So, like, if you want to go find more, uh, I don't know, 
academic versions of these of these stories. Yes, you can. I know. I just I wish more of these media outlets would popularize it without sensationalizing it's it. It's not because, their job, though. No, I know, but so much of it is already so sensationalized. It's just like it just adds to the chaos instead of adding to the actual like trope and the story and the. Um, but I mean, there. I don't know. I I don't think it's and a also reasonable, then whose job is it? I don't think it's a reasonable expectation to look to a. To, to look to TV for that type of information. Like, we don't expect that of yeah. any other type of TV show. Well, news, but not like... But I'm saying that this is this is not being presented as that. It's not being presented yeah. as a documentary yeah. or as a news source. It's being yeah. presented as an entertaining fictional show. Like, we don't, we don't look at the, you know, the Sopranos and be like, man... That shit was unrealistic. I wish I wish they would have portrayed that in a more honest way. No, but like like I'm like I'm thinking of this is maybe a bad example, but like I'm thinking of was it FX who did the Versace story? I don't know. Like and I didn't even see that. Or like FX definitely did the OJ one, right? The with like David Schwimmer and all that. I'm I'm just saying like what if they did the fictionalized version of the OJ story? But just like added in a bunch of like, yes, they dramatize it in a way where they can tell the story in a way that is, you know, but like, I think that's different in a few ways, though. Like people died, first of all. Yeah, there's there's more at stake and it's more recent. Sure, but like they changed the name from Gorman to Fuller in Project Blue Book, and then they insinuate that the dude went to a fucking psych ward. I mean, don't get me wrong. If I I were George Gorman or his family, I would be pissed. Yeah, like that's kind of fucked up. That's maybe the core of what I'm trying to get at. Absolutely. It's like you shouldn't do that to, if it's that close, you shouldn't change like one detail and then two details over here that totally blow it out of the water and then disrespect like real events and real people that way. Right. And I guess going back to what I said at the the beginning, like as a viewer, I don't mind it. Yeah. If I were someone actually involved with any of the things that they're talking about, I would probably be annoyed or more. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Real quick to wrap up the actual story. Yeah. yeah. The investigation. After uh, initially thinking that maybe there was some weirdness going on in terms of the the Geiger counter readings and... um, possibly coming into close contact with an atomic-powered something. The final conclusion by Project Sign was that Gorman had witnessed a lighted weather balloon, or a lit weather balloon, a weather balloon with a light on it. Mm. Mm. Which doesn't really make sense with anything that was described by any of the witnesses. Sure doesn't. And I would think that especially the two air traffic controllers would be aware of or be able to access information about the concept. Well, they would have to know if there were weather balloons in the area where there was going to be air traffic. For sure. So that things don't run into things. Right. That, as is their job. Right. Um also, if you don't know about weather balloons, um, they are generally significantly larger than eight inches tall. Generally do not <laughs> accelerate at speeds in excess of four hundred miles per hour. They do not dart uh, change acceleration, speed, uh, velocity, um, uh, altitude, up and down, and diving and climbing, um, and and I think that to me is like I can stomach Roswell being a weather balloon or similar, full of aliens, full of aliens, um, but when you have going back to what we said five very credible people who are trained in observation, trained in flying, uh, to your point, trained in knowing what's a weather balloon and what's not so that people don't fucking die when they fly into one. Important things to be able to distinguish. Important things to be able to distinguish. When all these people, all they could all remark was, damn, that thing was moving fast. That was so crazy. What a weird thing. Wow, it was so fast. It outran me. I couldn't climb up to it. I couldn't, you know, get down to it. Like, they all remark all of this, and then you expect people to believe that that thing that they all estimated was like a foot tall was actually closer to like 8 to 15 feet tall and was moving at speeds of 400 to yeah. 600 plus miles per hour. 
like that's no, it doesn't. It doesn't work. That doesn't work doesn't for work. me at all. <laughs> like, which is not also even what, a little bit going back to the, the Blue Book show for a second. It's one of the fun things about that series is you get some of the the cases that led to the like classic UFO explanations yeah, that we yeah. hear, like weather balloons being one of them. Right. Swamp gas. Swamp um, gas. The, the origin of the of the swamp gas explanation comes up. Uh, Owls as well. Okay. Uh huh. That's a uh-huh. that's a hell of a fucking owl. Owls often get mistaken for aliens, apparently, or vice versa. No. Oh. Mm-hmm. Okay. I'm not entirely sure how that works. I don't know either. Uh, the other part of the the explanation that had been talked about that I also think is kind of ludicrous is um, there was an insinuation that Jupiter was. Part of oh yeah yeah he the, was, that Gorman was chasing Jupiter yeah that he as that if he had never seen a planet planets in or, the sky and, or yeah. stars mm-hmm. yeah that um they thought that maybe it was a combination of he saw a weather balloon that was lit and then he saw Jupiter in the sky and thought that it was far away and then this dude should close. not be flying planes if that's his reaction to these things I mean come on right like how if you're a pilot of any kind. Are you looking at a star in the sky and oh, being fuck, like, "That's that's Jupiter, shoot it! It's fucking shoot it! It's moving so I'm fast! I'm gonna get your ass! It's moving so fast relative to every light in the entire sky. That's crazy. That shit nasty. What do you think happened, man? I think he saw a UFO. Fuck! What is it? I don't know. What is it? Russian drones. Maybe tiny people. Very, from other planets extremely tiny people living inside a golden snitch maybe ready to be caught by harry potter it's a wizard forge gorgman it was a wizard the meat plan hey guys uh thank you for listening to the show thank you for supporting the show we love you all uh if you want to send us an email it's hi at whatifpodcast.com if you want to leave us a voicemail it's 612-246-4614 uh the shop's always open we got swag and merch and hoodies and hats uh also if you want to get an extra episode every single week it's patreon.com slash what if podcast it's only five bucks a month you get an extra episode every single week plus we got a back catalog of like over 60 episodes of the show now so uh you get a whole lot more what if in your eardrums we love you thanks for supporting the show we'll see you next week we